Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, as time goes on, we're living longer. And with longer life, the odds of facing long-term degenerative or aberrant proliferative, easy for you to say, proliferative diseases increase. So we're either going to break down and fall apart or sloppy cellular processes start to give rise to these cells that lose control of their ability to divide. So proliferation and differentiation, it's the genetic, generic commonality to the disease state we think of as cancers. Now, currently, one in three families will be touched by some sort of cancer, and it'll happen with increasing frequency as surveillance and detection continue to improve. Now, as you look back over seven and a half years of podcasts, the Talking Biotech you find quite a few that are dedicated to novel strategies to detect and treat certain cancers. And the newest techniques borrow from many molecular approaches, which are super cool, including elements that look more like the COVID vaccine than traditional chemotherapy. And innovation is just rampant in this space with startups everywhere. In plant biotech, people are pushing back against innovation. In medical biotech, people push back in a different way. They state that alternatives might be better or safer, maybe more natural. You know, you get the picture. Sadly, the tremendous advances in cancer therapies, they've evolved hand in hand with misinformation and sometimes disinformation about the efficacy of these tested and proven treatments. And they push the fantasy of alternative or integrative therapies. And we've seen it, you know, you see it online anytime there's a discussion of chemotherapy, herbal concoctions, joint manipulation, nostrums isolated from your whiz, you know, all these different ways that hucksters everywhere feel they can solve a complexity like cancer with some sort of alternative treatment that sometimes can be extremely expensive, not covered by insurance, and it doesn't work, which is the main problem. So today we'll explore the cancer misinformation space. We're speaking with Dr. Skylar Johnson. Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor at the Huntsman Cancer Center at the University of Utah, and he'll be speaking this week at the University of Florida on November 15th at 11 a.m. So if you're in the Gainesville metropolitan area, stop by and give it a listen. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here too. I'm As I mentioned in the intro, you know, we talk mostly about biotechnology breakthroughs, and there's so many that are happening in the area of cancer. But when you start to talk about new technology and cancer, you also are prone to the other side of this, which is the bad information cancer. And your recent articles have been really nice in this area. So let's start out by talking about the good information that's available. How would you rate the internet in providing objective, credible information about different types of cancers? Well, you know, it's, it's a really difficult question to answer because, as you probably know, and many of your listeners probably know, the answer is it depends on where individuals are going 
And there's a lot of really high quality, credible data that's available online in terms of cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. The problem is, is that there's a ton of misinformation as well. And it becomes really hard for your you know, lay cancer patient to be able to discern what's credible and what's not necessarily. But, you know, I, I typically will tell my patients to look at websites. I'll give them examples of websites that are credible. You know, there's the National Cancer Institute website, cancer.gov. It's, it's the usual recommendation. Now, you want to stick to .gov, .edu, nonprofit organizations in most cases. But even then, there's, there's some gray areas. Well, is it cancer specifically? I mean, if you compare against other things like, say, heart disease or, you know, Alzheimer's, whatever, Parkinson's, does it seem like more misinformation happening around long-term developmental issues like cancers? You know, I don't think that there's any data to suggest that that's true. I, what we do know is that there are a lot of cancer patients, obviously, and there are a lot of cancer survivors as our treatments improve and our cure rates increase, and that there's a lot of misinformation surrounding unproven and disproven cancer treatments and supportive therapies, and it's a multi-billion dollar per year industry. And so there's a huge draw for many cancer patients to want to pursue, you know, some of these unproven therapies that are the result of misinformation online. In terms of whether I could compare that to other disease sites, I don't think there's any data to support that. And I guess I always think of the kind of marquee examples like, you know, the Brzezinski stuff in Mexico and all the folks who are making claims about curing these unusual cancers by using, you know, urine derivatives and all this kind of stuff. But is it a much more pervasive problems with like over-the-counter type of therapies and ideas that people are passing on that are, you know, just maybe a much more lower level? Or are they really just a few big marquee cases of people making claims about either detection or cures? It's it's really quite complicated. There's so many granular recommendations that are coming from many different sources. So one of the studies that we're conducting right now is actually evaluating from a multi-institutional perspective, the exposures of basically misinformation to cancer patients in terms of the unproven and disproven treatment recommendations that are coming away, where those are coming from, how they determine whether those recommendations are credible. And preliminarily, it, it appears as though there are many, many recommendations. It's quite shocking how many different types of unproven and disproven cancer treatment recommendations are being made. And it makes it really difficult to study because it's hard to evaluate potential negative complications and interactions that might occur with all of the hundreds of different types of unproven therapies that a person might be using with the many different types of cancer treatments that we have available. And is most of this happening in social media or are these more coordinated websites or EOs that are spreading the false information? It's a combination. So much of the misinformation that is being spread comes from word of mouth. So, you know, a whether it be a well-intentioned family member or friend. Much of it comes from online sources. We know that there's many individuals who get their misinformation from cancer support groups online via Facebook support groups or things like that. And those, those groups are private, obviously difficult to study. Um, but we also know that there's misinformation generally from cancer articles online, which was what our most recent study 
in this space was evaluating. And can you tell, drill down on that study just a bit, like how much of information that was out there turned out to be suspect? Yes. So this study evaluated the most popular cancer articles shared on online, basically through social media applications, namely Facebook, Reddit, Pinterest, and Twitter. We evaluated 200 cancer articles that were shared online, and these were evaluated by NCCN guideline panel members who are cancer treatment experts to evaluate whether these articles had misinformation and whether they also had the potential for harm. And if so, what types of misinformation and what types of harm that they held. This study suggested that one third of the articles that are on social media applications have misinformation. And most concerningly, of these articles that contain misinformation, four out of five of them contain the potential for harm for patients who use those potential therapies. So is it harm from the therapy specifically, or is it harm from using that therapy in lieu of a real effective therapy? Yeah. So how these were graded as part of the research were in these specific categories, namely, was it a harmful action? Meaning did the therapy have some potentially toxic effects of doing kind of the suggested therapy? Could have been a harmful inaction where it led to some delay or not seeking medical attention for what was a treatable or a curable condition. And then there's these harmful interactions that are known or unknown medical interactions with curative therapies. For example, a verbal remedy that inhibits or amplifies kind of the metabolism of chemotherapies, either making those chemotherapies less effective or even more toxic than they would be normally. And then there's even the risk of economic harm where out-of-pocket financial costs associated with these treatments or even travel to international locations such as Mexico or, or even you know, some European countries which don't have quite as uh, stringent um, protections for cancer patients as we do in the United States. And I guess maybe an important question then. So you're in your practice. Do you have a personal example of this that kind of brought you into this area or has this always been kind of an interest? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. So when I was a second year medical, so my wife was diagnosed with what was a Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I, I guess I should preface the story by saying that she's doing really great now and is cured from her cancer. But at that time I did what I imagine most people do. And, and her and I, I, you know, we immediately went to the internet and we searched for what the treatment was, what the prognosis was. And I was really surprised, even at that point, at how much misinformation there was online about cancer treatments and how to approach curing a person's cancer. And I was really caught off guard by this because even though I had a little bit of medical knowledge, it was really difficult even for me to discern what was credible and what was not credible. So that experience really stuck with me. And, you know, fortunately, you know, for my wife and for everybody who knows and loves her, she followed the recommendations of her, of her position. weren't swayed by any of the misinformation that was online, and she got a, a cancer treatment that cured her cancer. So, you know, throughout that experience, that the one that kind of drew me towards cancer care as a medical specialty, I encountered numerous patients who were declining recommended conventional cancer treatments like surgery or chemotherapy or 
radiation for their curable cancers. And then we were often seeing these patients come in many years kind of down the line, or maybe even many months down the line with cancers that were then incurable. And sadly, saw many of these patients die. The, the very, really difficult part about how to advise these patients or to know what the data says is that it's difficult to study them because oftentimes when they say they're not going to receive curable or they're not going to receive a conventional cancer treatment, they will fall off kind of the map and be hard to follow up with what their outcomes are, evaluate exactly what they did. During my residency, I encountered a national cancer database that collects somewhere around 70% of all of the cancer diagnoses in the United States, there are associated cancer types, the treatments that the people receive. It's all de-identified data, but it's one where we often will publish comparative effectiveness research and national outcomes. And I stumbled across this group of patients who were using unproven cancer treatments in lieu of their conventional cancer therapies. And this research demonstrated that there's obviously an increased risk of death associated with that decision. So it's one of the largest and most studies comparing what happens to patients when they follow their physician's recommendations versus when they use unproven cancer treatments. And this was you know, amongst patients with the most common cancer types like breast, lung, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer. And when they're getting this false information, is it coming from, you know, you mentioned earlier, maybe, you know, a friend or a loved one, something like that. But how much is it coming from somebody either using the title doctor as you know, a naturopath or something like that? Someone who's, who's taking a position of credibility and authority and saying, ignore the conventional medical system. We know something better. Well, I'll tell you anecdotally that we hear that quite often. And one of the kind of really interesting things that's occurring in this space of misinformation is determining what trusted, credible sources patients view for accurate information. And despite kind of news media and TV and newspaper falling in rates of trust amongst individuals, cancer physicians remain really high with nearly 80 to 90 percent of patients suggesting that they still trust physicians. Interestingly, we are in the process of publishing some data that compares users of unproven cancer therapies with non-users of unproven cancer therapies. And we show that these rates and trust in physicians is similar. However, it appears as though those individuals who use unproven cancer therapies also have increased trust in practitioners that fall kind of outside of the um, traditional medical paradigm and include chiropractors and naturopaths, often who don't have any cancer-specific training. And so that is a little bit concerning. And this is when we look at subgroup analyses of patients who are using treatments specifically for a cure of their cancer, it's even higher for those types of providers. Yeah, it kind of drives me crazy because if you talk to legitimate oncologists who tell you that, you know, cancer is not one thing and, and that, there, that there's different theology and different manifestations of all the different types of cancers, the treatments, detection, everything's different. For someone to tell you, I can cure cancer automatically should disqualify them from, from giving you any kind of treatment because it just seems like, like even the experts, these are perplexing problems that require a high degree of specialization. And to say that by cracking a certain vertebrae is going to give you 
some sort of stimulatory effect to combat, you know, a solid tumor. I mean, I don't know where this comes from and it's really upsetting, but, but this kind of thing does happen, right? Yeah, it does. And I think some, some really interesting data that came out of the COVID pandemic in terms of belief, misinformation belief demonstrated that, that patients really wanted surety, right? And I think as a scientific communicator and as scientific communicators, we all realize that when in, in science, really, we don't talk in terms of 100% confidence and we say things like maybe or likely. And this is often how I communicate with patients. So I can, you know, dis despite the frustration that I have with this, I can also understand from a patient's perspective who has a really aggressive cancer and wants to do everything they can to cure their cancer. When they come to me and I say, hey, there's a 60% chance that we could cure your cancer. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you're in that 60%. And then they may go to somebody else who says, hey, listen, there's a 100%, 100% chance that I cure your cancer. You're not going to have any side effects. I mean, those, those discussions are, are completely different. I think it's clear to us which one of those discussions is ethical. But to patients, it's, it, you know, unfortunately, they're encountering unscrupulous providers. And I think I'd add, I, I, mean, I don't mean to pile on, you know, alternative care practitioners. There's a lot of well-intentioned providers out there who kind of stay within the limited data that supports the use of their, their treatments for subjective well-being. I think that there's also a major issue with medical providers, MDs, NDOs, who don't have cancer-specific training, who um, try to provide credibility or they're unscrupulous in their practice to recruit cancer patients to receive specific tr treatments that they're offering. They often charge tens of thousands of dollars as patients out of pocket for their services, all because they have a credible degree behind them. Yeah, very, very disturbing. They're speaking with Dr. Skylar Johnson. He's at the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah. He's a physician scientist and assistant professor of radiation oncology and actually will be speaking at the University of Florida. Next week, I believe that's November 15th. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Collabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. -P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we're speaking with Dr. Skylar Johnson. He's a physician scientist at the University of Utah who works in radiation oncology and has published a recent paper on misinformation in cancer biology and or cancer I guess you don't want to say biology, but detection treatment. Is most of this based on treatment or is it more treat misinformation around causes and detection or where does it really fall? Yeah. So most of my research is in and basically within the area of cancer treatment misinformation. You know, there's obviously a lot of misinformation in the screening space and the diagnosis space, but it, the treatment space is where We've focused the majority of our research. That's where you can publish, you know, objective outcomes regarding survival that really impact cancer patients directly. So that's where we focus most of our attention. 
Well, then I think one of the aspects of this that really bothers me is that hospitals seem to be actually integrating and recommending non-therapy therapy. And that they're, in a way, it kind of legitimizes the treatments. So a lot of the hospitals are offering these, you know, integrated medicine things where they're bringing in, you know, acupuncturists and Reiki healers and energy field manipulators. And how much does that legitimize bogus treatments that really can't do what they claim to be doing and really just confuse this issue? Yeah, it's really it's really quite a, a challenge. You know, obviously a lot of these centers are being put in place for not necessarily based reasons, but oftentimes financial incentive reasons. And it, it can be quite challenging because it does legitimize some therapies that could potentially harm a patient, especially if they forego what are the, you know, recommended conventional cancer therapies. You know, I will say it's a, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword However, because although there is, there is risk of legitimizing and it does happen where online a blogger or, you know, a medical article will say this, you know, unproven cancer treatment is going to cure your cancer. And look, even Harvard or even Memorial Bloom Kettering or Huntsman Cancer Institute are offering this type of therapy. And, and that's, that's a risk. You know, on the other hand, at times I will encounter patients who are trying to use an unproven cancer treatment, they have some baseline level of distrust in physicians, some baseline level of distrust in, you know, the, the medical, I guess I'm using my, my air quotes here, the medical industrial complex or pharmaceutical industry. And because of that distrust, it at times has been nice to be able to send patients to a evidence-based center, like the one I feel like we have here where they say, you know what, yoga, massage, exercise, all these things are going to make you feel better. And we're going to use these to try to help you get through your cancer treatments, but they're not a replacement. So it's nice to kind of have an ally in that space where I can send patients to to get what is a second opinion that will encourage them not to forego their conventional cancer treatments. Yeah. And I guess it falls in the category of wouldn't hurt. You know, you send someone for yoga or for massage therapy. And, you know, that, that could have some benefits in other ways. And even just treatment effects do have a benefit to a patient, at least in their well-being. And someone who's suffering from cancer diagnosis could use that. So, yeah. you know, so I kind of see that side of the coin, right? I mean, it does seem to potentially have some. Yeah, exactly. And, but the real challenge becomes, again, that, you know, people are using some combination of these therapies that a medical provider might recommend for just general sense of well-being, like great, you know, go exercise, eat a healthy diet, get a massage. These are all things that I obviously support strongly, but then they'll combine these things to lend credibility on proven expensive cancer treatments that are, have never been proven to cure cancer and could either potentially interact with a known conventional cancer treatment, or if you're foregoing a proven cancer treatment, you know, risk your chance at cure and survival. When you're talking about the unproven ones, you know, there's lots of them out there, obviously. What's the most egregiously bad misdirection that you've seen? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a hard one. It's a hard one to answer. Oftentimes, what we know from our data and from others' data is that patients are using a combination of multiple 
therapies. Again, which makes studying these incredibly difficult. So a person might come in to see me and they are doing IV vitamin C infusions, high dose IV vitamin C infusions. Mm -hmm. And they're also rubbing black salt on their, you know, breast for breast cancer. And they're taking some CBD product for support. And then they're also getting massage and doing yoga. And so it's all of these combinations of therapies. But I will say some of the most heartbreaking things that I've seen recently have been young patients with initially very curable cancers forego a simple and easy conventional cancer treatment for an IV or topical therapy or a PO kind of an oral herbal remedy and their cancer spreads and becomes metastatic and then they're incurable. And I've, I've watched these patients die. And that is very, very upsetting when you know that had they been treated up front, they had as high as a 90% chance of cure. Yeah, that's a heartbreaker. Is there any kind of culpability though for the sources that give this kind of medical guidance? I mean, if you gave somebody bad information that was negligent, you would be on the hook for that and be held accountable and could even face any censure to license revocation. All kinds of things could happen to you. But what happens when the, you know, when the internet's favorite doctor, naturopath, you know, Dave says, you know, this herbal remedy is all you need. Isn't there some culpability there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's obviously my, my personal beliefs that there is culpability and they are responsible for early deaths. The, the challenge really, you know, becomes how do you, how do you pursue that in a, in a pragmatic way? I, I will tell you what's been really surprising from a psychological perspective, it being in my position, watching these patients who have used unproven cancer therapies or followed the advice of online gurus or a practitioner who they trusted greatly, even though their cancer spreads and becomes metastatic and it's very clear that that treatment didn't work they will stay loyal to those individuals and it's been quite surprising to see yeah but i think that's what we i think that's what we see though is that if it if it didn't work well it's because of obviously some influence from big pharma or something else you know there's some always some reason that the trusted therapy from the trusted source didn't work and some other it's somebody else's fault rather than there's no evidence for it working. And it really gets into the psychology of this more, which, you know, my in interest in misinformation are probably very similar to yours, just in a different area. But the dynamics and the psychology of this are really tough. So how much are oncologists trained in how to talk to patients about the potential mistakes they could make? Yeah, I would say that the physician, at least you know, based on my own personal training and that of the colleagues that I know, is very limited. I mean, we do not get a lot of support in our education to deal with these challenging situations. And I mean, you can imagine we've got most medical education in the United States is four years, and you have to cover a lot of information in that time. And so a lot of medical schools, you know, they don't, they don't take a lot a lot of time to, to teach medical students and a lot of medical providers don't get a lot of experience encountering these types of patients. And then you add on to that, the additional systemic factors that exist in medicine where I may have 20 to 30 minutes to, to sit at maximum with each patient, you know, and discuss what we'd like to do in terms of treatment. And 
when they, it, that whole meeting may, may make me stretch for time. I may have multiple patients waiting. And then that patient may say, well, hey, doc, what do you think about me doing this? And I, you know, I'm, I'm glancing at my watch, although I, I try to do it discreetly. It, it's become a real challenge to be able to dedicate the time necessary to really delve into some of the psychological factors that lead somebody to want to pursue these types of therapies. And then how do you even go about changing an individual's mind? Now, this is research that's been going on for decades about how you change beliefs, how you change behavior and modify behavior in people who hold strong belief. And that's, that's a real challenge. And, and we're doing our best to research ways that we can help patients in this space. In fact, I have a collaborator at the University of Florida, and we're working on a, a grant right now where we're trying to identify ways in which we can improve patient and clinician communication surrounding cancer misinformation. So an oncologist already has a full plate. You've got a lot of patients, you've got limited time. So how much of this could benefit from really deputizing other science communicators and getting people out there with the right information? So in other words, Instead of you going out and correcting the bad information, giving the rest of us who are scientifically literate and, and willing to communicate, giving us the information so that we're more comfortable correcting the bad information. So train the trainers rather than train the person seeking an alternative therapy. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's a really great idea. I think that there's some really novel approaches to figuring out how we can address misinformation on a larger scale. And oftentimes we talk about how we can inoculate patients against misinformation, almost like there's a, a vaccine, right, that will prevent patients from adopting misinformation. And in the same way, you kind of view misinformation as, as, as kind of almost like an infectious disease. You can view the response to that misinformation, almost like an infectious disease where you have a bunch of early responders and individuals who are trained to be able to address that misinformation in hopes of preventing its spread. I think it's a great idea. Well, I know in the area of you know genetic engineering, which I speak about with respect to crops quite a bit, and in other areas, COVID really gotten to the front of addressing false information online. It has been always very difficult to, it took a long time to learn how to do it correctly by earning trust first before trying to beat people over the head with facts and figures. And I think that the scientific community generally is getting better. But how is the medical community doing? Are, are the me medical doctors still kind of the eggheads who are just want to beat you over the head with data? Or do you think they're trying to be a little more nuanced? Well, I guess it's a real challenge. I think it's a, it's a combination. Fortunately, the National Institutes of Health and specifically the National Cancer Institute has made addressing misinformation, especially misinformation online, a health priority. And they are doing that by putting up the money to basically find, to fund grants, to be able to research this important issue. Um, it, it, in terms of how individual physicians are doing right now, I, I would say that it, it's really probably not great. Uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. Again, we've got so many time constraints. And as physicians, we deal in uncertainty, and this is the way that we discuss the science surrounding uh, the benefits and the risks of the treatments that we offer. And, um, and sometimes that can really be off-putting to patients. And so we, we know that patients oftentimes prefer anecdotes and stories, and, and we're stuck kind of in this area of knowing the data and yeah. describing the data 
in ways that are not necessarily compelling to cancer patients. Yeah, welcome to my world. I mean, we, this is what we battled with for years, right? But I think we're getting better. I, I guess the last question I would have for you is the question of intent. How much information out there is false information because people just believe in their heart that, that you know, if you manipulate your, your energy field, you can cure the tumor versus how much of it is blatant disinformation where people are actively spreading false information knowingly with the intent of profit or some sort of political influence? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I couldn't tell you what the, the data says because uh, as you are, listeners are probably aware, it becomes really difficult to be able to discern intent from some of the sources that we're trying to evaluate in terms of cancer information. Um, so we can say, yeah, this is false versus this is true versus this is you know likely not harmful versus harmful. But it becomes much more difficult to be able to say this person is, has ill intent. And so I couldn't tell you exactly what that how, you know what that looks like. You know, I, I will tell you that it's not uncommon to see what I would consider the sources of disinformation online in terms of people who are you know unscrupulous providers looking to you know make money or earn clout from these types of recommendations. Yeah, I, I just was curious if there's any kind of idea. You're right; you can't judge intent very well, but there seems to me to be a lot of very well-educated people who are working maybe in medical space or closely related field that peddle false information. And I guess I can, you know, I mean, I could name names and things like that, but I think people know who we're talking to. They have tremendous online empires that sell products and have, you know, big stores attached yet. And they have medical training and they know better because they have practiced legitimately in the past, but now taking this turn, it, it, it really surprises me. So I guess, you know, maybe to kind of wrap things up, if you had to leave people with the best source of information to go with it, what were the best sources that we could go to? So, you know, my preferred sources are the National Cancer Institute and cancer.gov. So these are the, the, you know, the best sources. They have cancer-specific information, not only on treatment, but also on screening and diagnosis as well as survivorship. So it's a really great, well-rounded source of information for well, Dr. Skylar Johnson, if people wanted to learn more about these issues and follow you maybe on social media, where would they find you? So I have predominantly you know, shared most of my research and thoughts in the area of the unproven cancer treatments and cancer misinformation on Twitter. I'm not, so, I'm not sure how much water that's going to get a persist, <laughs> but right now it's, it's sky underscore, underscore, John, J-O-H-N. And you can also go read about our most recent research updates on my lab website, which is found at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. My name is Skylar Johnson. Very good. Well, thank you very much for a compelling discussion because this is a really important issue for anybody who has cancer in the family. You know, they're going to turn to those types of, of treatments. And as more of us survive the easy things, like, you know, falling down flights of stairs and heart attacks, things like that. Things like cancer may increase in incidence with time. And, and so this is a really important conversation. So thank you very much today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great discussion. Hope to have many more in the future. And maybe that's the most important point is the future. And, and where are we going to go, as I mentioned before, as more rare cancers that receive less funding maybe begin to take more prevalence as 
people see this in their families. I think it's one in three families will be touched by some sort of cancer. That it's very easy and very appealing to look at an alternative therapy or some non-substantiated uh, therapy as something worth trying. Yet these can get in the way of conventional therapy. They can be expensive and maybe even not work at all. And too many cases where people have foregone actual treatment for any some of these therapies with disastrous results. So keep keep up with Dr. Johnson and, and learn how to tell the difference and share that with your family and friends. So thank you very much for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. And we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.